Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. How the U.S. became an empire is a mystery to even some of its inhabitants, but they would do well to pick up How to Hide an Empire, a History of the Greater United States, to find out a bit about U.S. history and uh, the hidden history of the United States. It's a book by Daniel Immervar, and he is a uh, associate professor of history at Northwestern University, and he's here with us to uh, join us and talk about his book for the hour. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me on. I wanted to start with an editorial you had in the New York Times the other day about um, President Trump and his ideas about Greenland. And uh, there are things about Greenland that probably a lot of people don't know. One of them, um, which is a hallmark of U.S. empire, is the U.S. has already pushed indigenous people out of Greenland. That's right. Um, we shouldn't say out of Greenland entirely, but the United States has had military bases in Greenland, and one of the most important of those, Thule, um, which the United States still operates, um, the United States just took the spot, and, and there was an indigenous community living there, uh, and they, they sort of pressed those people, I think, 65 miles to the north uh, to New Thule, and you know, dropped them off unceremoniously with blankets and the best of good wishes, and that was that. So the U.S. already has a long history of presence and kind of colonial presence in Greenland. And the Thule Air Force Base has been really important to the U.S. during the Cold War, and they, they had lots of uh, nuclear weapons around there. That's right. It's a slightly difficult issue because the Danish um, asked that the United States not store nuclear weapons on the base, and the United States, without informing the Danish government, just did it. And then it would fly these nuclear weapons over Greenland, which is kind of a horrifying thing when you think about it, um, because sometimes those planes crashed um, carrying armed nuclear weapons. Um, but it did so as a way of um, staging a threat to the Soviet Union. Uh, if it could keep B-52s aloft with armed nuclear weapons, which it did, um, that meant that even if the Soviets hit every U.S. city and every U.S. base on the ground, there would still be retaliatory c capacity in the air. And this is the Dr. Strangelove thing, which was depicted in Dr. Strangelove as, yeah. you know, got Greenland and the planes crashing that really happened, a great big plane full of uh, nuclear weapons crashed in Greenland. That's right. So first of all, Dr. Strangelove is filmed over Greenland. Right. And, and that dramatic ending where the, where the bomb goes uh, down, um, that's not entirely wrong. So in 1967, uh, four planes had crash landings that were carrying bombs. Um, so that's they landed, but it was you know a difficult landing for, for all of them. And in 1968, a, a B-52 that was carrying um, four Mark 28 uh, hydrogen bombs hit the ice at 500 miles an hour. Um, obviously, the, the four hydrogen bombs did not detonate, um, but they did... Uh, explode, which is different, meaning that the nuclear device didn't go off, but but the bomb physically exploded, uh, and it spewed radioactive material all over. So the United States right now, in purchasing the whole island, that would seem to be uh, for mineral wealth. This seems to be uh, why. Yeah, the why is a little unclear. Um, Trump has not been remarkably explicit about it. When he has talked about the desirability of Greenland, he said it is strategically interesting. Um, that could be because of um, Greenland's mineral wealth, including um, rare earth minerals that you know, are strategically useful. Uh, but Greenland, one of the most important things about Greenland is, is its location. It is very conveniently situated between North America and Eurasia. And you know, if you're looking at a Mercator projection of the map, it looks like it's sort of this big ice cube 
too far out of the way. Um, but if you look at a map, if you look at a globe and you actually think about air routes, Greenland is a really important hub uh, or, or a potential hub for aviation in the world. And that's why one of the reasons why it's been so important. Now, why Trump wants it now, whether for the routes, uh, for the location or for the rare earth minerals, it's a little unclear. Um, but Tom Cotton has been clear that uh, it's the minerals he's interested in. Now, do you think that um, the Trump administration and Tom Cotton maybe don't understand how U.S. power works? I think Trump does not seem to understand it because, you know, from Trump's logic, it's very, you can just imagine him like staring at a map of Manhattan and thinking – I want this corner. I want this property. I'm going to buy it, right? That's the sort of how a real estate developer does things. Um, and it seems to me like Trump is taking that mentality toward a map of the planet. He heard, he knows that Greenland is interesting to the United States, as he puts it. And he concludes that the thing, therefore, to do it is to annex Greenland. Um, what I don't think he gets in that is that the United States already has use of Greenland. It already has had bases there. It already has a very important base there. Uh, it's, it's able in some ways to use Greenland without having all of the um, responsibility of annexing it and without having all the difficulties of engaging in a colonial venture. Um, you know, that's kind of the pattern of what the United States has done after World War II. And to, to just go back to you know, outright annexations would be a dramatic reversal. What if President Trump does understand um, <laughs> how power works and he just wants to reverse it? Because later in the book, you talk a bit about um, one of the unintended consequences of the U.S. power after World War II was that we taught the world how to manufacture things and we got deindustrialized. Uh, Japan figured out pretty well how to uh, make a lot of stuff and a lot of our manufacturing started fleeing the country. And that's another thing that President Trump wants to reverse. He wants to just turn that around and he wants to tell all the companies to get out of China and come back and make stuff in the U.S. He wants a complete uh, rejection of of U.S. power and how it's been done since World War II. That's right. So after World War II, there was a strategy of the United States building up its influence and partly by building up allies. And so Germany was supposed to be, or sorry, excuse me, Japan was supposed to be a pillar of, of, of U.S. influence in East Asia. And part of that involved the United States giving Japan favorable deals and helping Japan build up its industrial economy. One cost of that was some U.S. firms lost out. And Donald Trump, that was the first thing that got him into politics. I uh, started writing editorials and appearing on TV complaining about how the Japanese were ripping the United States off. That's a, that's a kind of phrase he uses a lot. And so, yeah, you're right. From his perspective, it's very much a zero-sum thing. So it's, you know, do they have it? Do we have it? If they have it, how can we get it back? How, how are they stealing it from us? Um, which, is, which is different and, and would be a sort of reversal from the trend in, in U.S. exertion of power, which is uh, involves a much more sort of um, interdependence and interpenetration of sovereignty. So the U.S. has bases in places, there are deals, there are intricate deals, there's a lot of uh, collaboration and negotiation with foreigners. And that's what allows the United States to have an enormous amount of global sway without actually taking a huge amount of territory as Britain did in the 19th century. I'm talking with Daniel Emmervar, and we're talking about his book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. And I want, how did you get involved with this uh, topic of the, the territories? Because a lot of people don't even know they exist. Yeah, and I think I would count myself as someone who didn't know an awful lot about this topic. Um, 
I taught U.S. history. I taught it um, when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. I used to teach it uh, at San Quentin Prison, and I would always teach these these history surveys. And I taught them the way that you know most people teach them, and you know Reconstruction and the Gilded Age and that kind of thing. Um, and then I went to Manila, and I went there researching something else that I was working on. And you know I had known that the Philippines had been a colony of the United States for nearly half century. You know I, I had a doctorate in U.S. history. I knew that. But I think there's a difference between knowing something and really knowing it and really getting the full significance of it. And that's what I hadn't had until I arrived at Manila. And so being there, it was like the difference between, um, you know, reading the lyrics and hearing the music. And suddenly I looked around and I thought, wow, there are streets named after U.S. presidents. You know, there's a corner of Madison and uh, uh, Washington, and there's a McDonald's on that corner. Uh, and uh, the transit system I was using was based on uh, surplus U.S. Army jeeps, and I would uh, go to the Ateneo de Manila University to do my research, and, and I would see students there who were Filipino but who spoke English in an in a accent that didn't sound so terribly different from my Pennsylvanian accent. And it was kind of this moment for me where I thought, oh, my God, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been thinking about U.S. history in a, in a limited way. I hadn't really been thinking about the Philippines as part of U.S. history. Um, and it didn't take long for me to, to realize that it wasn't just the Philippines that was missing on my mental map. What about Guam? What about Puerto Rico? What about Hawaii before it became a state? All these things start to become really important to me. And so what I wanted to do in this book is to uh, tell U.S. history, tell a story about U.S. history where the United States is not just the continental uh, sort of blob that we're used to seeing on maps, but is actually um, the full United States, or some people called it in, at the turn of the century, the greater United States. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was curious about the territories, too. We did a week of programs on each territory, and we tried to figure out who had right, what rights where, and uh, the whole bit. And one of the things we did was go out on the street, and I talked with people and asked them a kind of a quiz about what they knew about U.S. territories. And we're going to play this piece of tape from 10 years ago. I'm standing on the corner of State and Jackson, and we're asking a few questions about American colonialism. Hi, how are you? Good, I'm fine, thank you. Can you name a U.S. colony just straight up off the top of your head, a place that was a U.S. colony at one time? West Virginia. <laughs> Still is, Fred. <laughs> how about from these three places? One of these was a U.S. colony. Iran, Guatemala, or the Philippines? The Philippines. The Philippines was definitely a U.S. colony. Yes. It was one of the colonies that the U.S. got during the Spanish-American War. Can you name another? Oh. Think oh. Caribbean. Uh, Bahamas? No, no. The British got to it first. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't know that one. I can't think of that one. Well, there was Cuba and Puerto Rico. Then it'd be Puerto Rico, absolutely. Yeah, there's Guam, too. We got Guam in the deal. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you for your time. And let's see if someone else wants to take the quiz. Which one was a former colony? Iran, Guatemala, or the Philippines? I'm pretty sure the Philippines was. Oh, yes, they were. And we got it in the Spanish-American War along with several other places. Can you think of one? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Big place Fidel Castro lives? Uh, friggin', what is it? <laughs> um... Tip of my tongue. Um, no, <laughs> I know it. I just don't remember. It's like... Alaska. San Juan? San Juan. Puerto Rico. That's Puerto I, Rico. I was like Costa Rica. 
<laughs> well, we got Cuba and Puerto Rico and Guam. So Puerto Rico, we still kind of got that one. It's not a state. What do you think it is? It's a territory, um, U.S. territory. That's right. It is an unincorporated dependent territory. Right. An organized, unincorporated dependent territory in legal terms. They call themselves also a commonwealth. But the United States has another commonwealth. Can you think of where that might be? It's in the Pacific. It's a little islands. It's in the Polynesian Triangle. It's not Samoa. It's not Samoa. Northern? Northern. Northern Mariana Islands? Oh, no, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of that. Um, it's an interesting place. It's the place where there are more women than men than anywhere else on Earth. It's because of the garment industry. Oh, really? Lucky guys. Thanks for doing this with us. Sweet. Okay. Let's see if someone else wants to take the quiz. Which one of these was a U.S. colony? Iran? Guatemala or the Philippines? I'm going to say Guatemala. No. It's not the Philippines because that was Spain. Yes, it is Philippines. It is? We got it during the Spanish-American War. Oh, okay. Now, American Samoa, do you think that they have a voting member of Congress? Um, I think they have their own elected body that they govern themselves with, but they're not... I don't think they're controlled through the U.S. Senate. They have a congressperson that just doesn't vote. Oh, so he has a seat. So there's uh, about five places that have non-voting members of Congress. American Samoa, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. Ah, yes. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ, Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm here on State and Jackson, and we're talking to people about American colonies. Uh, what's your name? Uh, Andy. Can you name an, a colony, an American colony, past or present, straight up off the top of your head? Sure. Uh, Philippines. Excellent. Can you name another place that the U.S. obtained during the Spanish-American War? Uh, Guam. Very good. Got another? Cuba. Excellent. There's only one more. You could be the first uh, quad factor winner here if you go for uh, one more. Uh, Puerto Rico. Excellent. We got all those territories during the Spanish-American War. And we've still got Puerto Rico, and it's not a state. What is it? It's a commonwealth. Correct. Absolutely correct. Now, American Samoa, do you think they have a representative in Congress? No. No representative. They do. He can't vote. Oh, okay. That makes sense because it's similar to Puerto Rico then, I would assume. Yeah. Absolutely. There's five non-voting members of Congress from different places, Americans, Moa, Guam, the Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico calls its representative a resident commissioner. Okay. (laughs) It seems kind of pointless having someone in Congress that can't do anything. And that's uh, People on the Street 10 years ago talking about uh, American colonialism and American empire. I'm here in the studio now talking with Daniel Immervar uh, about his book, How to Hide an Empire, a History of the Greater United States, which has to do with all those places and more. Um, How how do you feel about uh, what you just heard there? It's a little hard when folks can't distinguish whether the Philippines vis-a-vis Iran or Guatemala was a U.S. colony. That hurts me a tiny bit, but I get it. Look, you know, 
I grew but, up. I mean, part of that, uh, I thought my choices there were interesting because those are kind of like the newfangled colonies of post-World War II. At, at times, you know, U.S. influence in Iran has been very strong with its military bases and everything, and same with Guatemala. Right. The important thing is that the United States has staged coups in both Guatemala and Iran. So the United States has had an influence, but a different kind of influence. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's painful as someone who who's a historian of this kind of thing to hear that, but it's, it's not a surprise. Um, you know, and why should it be a surprise? I mean, I... I grew up, in, you know, on the U.S. mainland. At no point in my entire education did I see a map of the country that had Puerto Rico on it. And I think that's pretty normal for people who grew up in my circumstance So, and were educated in my circumstance. So, so I get that. I, I will issue an update uh, to your, your uh, quiz, which is the following. Um, in uh, this uh, house uh, passed an, a new rule that the um, uh, delegates from the territories can vote on legislation, except there's a, one caveat, which is that if those votes prove decisive, then the House revotes without the territorial delegates, which is sort of like, I mean, you know, I can't tell if that's progress or not. It feels like it's adding insult to injury, but there you are, that's where we are today. Well, that is uh, an incremental uh, achievement, I we'll guess. We'll take what we can get. Um, you know, it's. I would, maybe we should take a break right now, and we'll come back after the break, and we'll delve into uh, some of the history in Daniel Amervar's book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking about the book How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States Today. And with me is Daniel Immervar, and he is an associate professor of history at Northwestern University. I wanted to talk about one of the um, pieces of hallowed history here in Chicago is Daniel Burnham. He had the plan for Chicago. He um, envisioned this city. The Burnham plan is is kind of lauded as our blueprint and uh, people think in rosy colors about his um, white city in 1893 at the at the Global Exhibition here. And um, uh, tell us a little bit about Daniel Burnham, the colonialist, because I don't think most people know, but he uh, he was bigly involved in uh, the Philippines, Manila, and Baguio. That's right. So um, I know Burnham, or I you know have known Burnham for a long time as the guy who tried to envision Chicago and, and had a blueprint for it. And, you know, Chicago is a big and complicated city, and he got halfway there. Uh, a lot of the things he didn't he wanted to build um, or he envisioned didn't come to pass. Uh, he wanted a big civic center at Congress and Halstead, and that never got built um, because architecture is tricky, and people live in cities, and it's hard to move them around. He had a really different experience when he worked um, in the U.S. colonies. So uh, he, he got brought out to the Philippines, and he was in the colony for six weeks, and he just sort of went on this spree of um, first uh, planning Manila, 
which is in some ways a sister city to Chicago in that way, uh, and coming up with an urban plan for it. Manila um, has been one of the largest cities in the United States. Uh, and then uh, planning a from scratch city that was uh, virtually unbuilt, uh, that had been on lands um, that had been taken from Philippine uplanders, um, and called Baguio, which which was going to be a sort of colonial um um, capital, at least in the summer months, uh, for for the government, um, and so you know, six weeks in the colony, uh, he uh, you know just hastily just sort of you know draws on you know okay, uh, Phil, uh, Manila should look like this, Baguio should look like that, and I'm out. Um, and and despite his haste, he got way further in the Philippines than he managed to get uh, in, in in Chicago. And part of the reason he did is. You know, power looks different in the colonies. So there was a guy who was appointed uh, to be the the position was called consulting architect. But this one, this person was was virtually an architectural dictator in the entire colony. No public building could be built without his permission, and he also had a lot of influence over how private buildings were built. And by law, his job was to make sure that you know Manila followed the Burnham plan and that Baguio got built according to uh, Daniel Burnham's design. So uh, it's actually, uh, if you really want to look for the imprint of Daniel Burnham, if you really want to see Burnham doing his thing, it's the Philippines rather than Chicago that you should look because that's where you see Daniel Burnham untrammeled. And he did some weird stuff. In the Manila, he made all these diagonal streets to be in tribute to the center, the, the colonial power. It's, um, and that kind of messes up a city to have a lot of diagonal streets. Yeah, let's talk about what Daniel Burnham wanted, you know, <laughs> when he could get what he wanted. Um, he was instrumental in redoing the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It used to be full of trees, and he wanted them all taken out because his, his vision was there should be a few buildings where powerful people reside, and then there should be long uh, diagonal avenues radiating out from them so that everyone's gaze would be directed toward the center of power. That was that was what he thought a good city looked like. That's not my vision of a good city. I find, you know, that kind of architecture really uncomfortable. Those, you know, large uh, boulevards that cut through things, uh, you know, kind of, you know, rip out parts of the urban fabric. Um, and it's not a surprise that he didn't get that far doing it in Chicago, uh, but he did get much further doing it in Manila and Baguio. And there the colonial context only augmented his vision, which is really a vision of, of power. And, and, and the idea is that, um, you know, people in Manila should, should be able to, wherever they are in the city, should be able to direct their gaze toward the, uh, the center uh, of government, and they, you know, they should be under no question uh, who is in charge. And let's talk for a second about Baguio, because that was a place, the summer capital, and it was um, a real Fitzcarraldo kind of experience. They, they spent $2 million just making the road there up, up the mountain, and it sounds like people were dying and you know, the, whole, the whole bit. It was really hard. Yeah, Baguio is um, very high up mountainous terrain. Um, the road was extraordinarily difficult and it kept um, eroding with mudslides. But nevertheless, the colonial government was absolutely insistent that that place be built. And, and why? Because they thought Manila was too hot. They found Manila uncomfortable and therefore spent an enormous amount of the Philippine budget just building this spa a place where they could hang out, where they found the weather a little more congenial because it was so high up in the mountains. Um, the road was cost $2 million to build, which is about a tenth of what the United States had paid for the, for the entire colony of the Philippines. Um, uh, just, you know, dozens of people were dying uh, building this road. Uh, and then, you know, at enormous cost, they built one of the most um, sort of clean, 
modern, up-to-date, and well-resourced cities in the Philippines. They just build it way up a mountain uh, for them, you know, as a kind of retreat uh, for white colonial officials uh, with the expectation that Philippines would stay downhill. And this would be a, a sort of sanctum for them, a place where they could govern the Philippines without being overly bothered by Filipinos. And you've got great descriptions of Cameron Forbes, who was the governor general at the time, and the lifestyle he liked to lead was extremely colonial. And uh, he was relaxed. He was having a great time. He was not worried about the inhabitants of the Philippines very much. Yeah, his diaries are extraordinary because, first of all, he's obsessed with golf and polo. So, like, you know, he's like governing this huge colony and mainly he's talking about his polo scores. Uh, and and the other thing is it's, it becomes clear from his diary what governing the Philippines from Baguio looked like which is it looked like a very lackadaisical affair. You know, I get up late in the morning, you know, you know, have, have a few drinks at the club. Uh, you know, we have a meeting about, you know, how to govern the colony, but we try not to make it last too long because we really have to reserve some time for polo in the, in the afternoon. We don't want to miss that. Um, it's kind of incredible. It's just sort of galling when you think about this from a Philippine perspective uh, that, you know, the person in charge of the colony is, is basically just taking a, a vacation every summer at, at enormous ex- uh, public expense. And it's hard to imagine uh, in particular because the war in the Philippines against the resistance was so bloody and nasty. And most people you know, have no idea, but it was really bad. Yeah, let's talk about this. So after the United States annexed the Philippines in 1899, uh, it fought a war against um, Filipino nationalists, uh, a war that lasted in its various parts uh, from 1899 until 1913. So that is the second longest war in U.S. history, uh, only recently surpassed by the war in Afghanistan. Uh, And this war was raging while Daniel Burnham was there, while Cameron Forms is sort of uh, lazily having drinks at the club. And, you know, these guys are just you know, sort of uh, hanging out uh, 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 by the pool while uh, while a, a brutal war is happening oh, and, and a war that is leading to uh, some of the largest um, massacres in U.S. history, massacres of hundreds and in one case uh, we think a thousand uh, Filipinos uh, just in a single moment. And the um, estimates of the dead in that war, the, the kind of modern-day estimates, are much higher than – people probably re- realize. I mean, it's, it's a staggering number. I'm glad you brought that up. That's right. Um, we don't have amazing numbers on the war dead uh, from the Philippine War. And this is a pretty common thing in colonial history. The United States doesn't count, uh, you know, deaths of colonized subjects very carefully. Um, but the best study that we have suggests that the war killed uh, a little over three quarters of a million people. Um, many of them from disease. The war released diseases up and down the archipelago. Um, and, and some of that was 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 somewhat intentional in that the United States was um, interning people with different diseases, cutting off food supplies. Uh, but just for perspective, let's be clear. This is a war that, if those numbers are right, killed more people than the U.S. Civil War. This is bloodier than the U.S. Civil War. And, and that's right. And Daniel Burnham is just, you know, worrying about, you know, getting uh, good, good views, uh, good vistas up in the mountains. And if I can just zip right up to World War II in the Philippines, which is also uh, catastrophic and in, a, in ways that people probably cannot imagine, the um, United States obviously interned Japanese people in uh, – in the lower 48, but we also interned Japanese people who were in the Philippines, and and it was uh, it was kind of horrific. So one of the things that struck me about writing this book is that so many episodes that I knew from U.S. history or thought I knew looked different 
once you got the full extent of the United States in view. And uh, World War II and particularly this uh, Japanese internment are, 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 are really good examples of that. So, yeah, it's true. Um, the United States incarcerated about, a, I think, 120,000 um, people of Japanese descent on the U.S. mainland. And it's widely and rightly seen as one of the more regrettable um, you know, aspects of 20th century U.S. history. Uh, but it is almost never understood in this, this in discussions of this that uh, at the same time or even before, like right after the war started, uh, the United States uh, incarcerated some 30,000 um, people of Japanese descent in the, in the Philippines. And that internment was far bloodier. Um, it, it involved, I, I was able to find out, summary executions, just guards just shooting guns randomly into the camps to seeing if they would hit uh, anyone, uh, sexual violence, um, um, just, just all, all these sort of horrifying incidents of, of humiliation and, um, you know, and, and, and threats uh, of murder. Um, and it, one reason we don't talk about it is that it happened in the Philippines, and the Philippines doesn't really clock as part of the United States when we're thinking about U.S. history. Um, another reason is that, that it ended, and the reason it ended is that um, Japan conquered the Philippines. Uh, and when it conquered the Philippines, it uh, liberated the camps and uh, let the Japanese ancestry people who were in those camps out, and they often sort of then, you know, incarcerated their guards and, and, and reversed, uh, reversed position with them. And suppose that they they kind of took vengeance on their their people who were their captors, and this was the the whole question about um, well, will the Japanese who will they side with? And in the Philippines, after being incarcerated, they they sided with the um, the liberators, the Japan. Absolutely, it is a bloody war in all directions, and I think that's something that um, it's really easy not to see from the vantage of the U.S. mainland. It's easy to think that the only time that the United States was ever struck in World War II uh, was uh, was at Pearl Harbor, just briefly uh, bringing it into the war. Uh, but actually, you know, the war happened throughout the United States' Pacific uh, colonies. It happened on Guam, which was occupied. It happened in the Philippines, which was occupied. It happened in the western tip of Alaska, which was occupied. And uh, World War II in the Philippines, we think, killed uh, some 1.6 million people. That's two civil wars. Uh, and a lot of those people who were Filipino died from, from friendly fire. I'm talking with Daniel Immervar, and we're discussing his book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States, talking about um, World War II in some of the territories now. And just to go over a little in a little more detail what happened in the territories, um, there were other people who were interned on Guam, liberated people on Guam were interned after um, World War, after liberating it from the Japanese. That's right. So after the United States reconquered Guam, so Japan took Guam, the United States took it back, and then it rounded up Guamanians, who are U.S. nationals, and it put them in camps. And why did it put them in camps? Was it worried that they were uh, aiding the Japanese? No, nope, there were no worries about that. The Japanese had just been um, uh, you know, defeated on Guam and were soon to be defeated. Uh, no, the concern was that uh, Guamanians were just in the way. And so the United States interned its own nationals while it um, – you know, raised Guamanian homes and on the sites, the former sites of agricultural lands and homes, uh, it built U.S. air bases. And it thought that the best way to do that would be to intern the population just so they wouldn't be in the way when the United States built its bases on Guam. In Hawaii, there was martial law for quite a bit longer than seems necessary. Yeah, we don't really talk about this, but um, for most of the war, Hawaii was subject to martial law. And it was 
far beyond the point when anyone thought Hawaii was going to be a direct target of uh, J- of Japan. I mean, obviously, Japan had attacked Hawaii uh, in, in 1841, but pr- you know, after the Battle of Midway in 1842, it didn't look like Japan was going to be able to come back. Uh, nevertheless, the military subjected uh, the entire territory to martial law, so it's not an internment of individuals. It's rather literally putting barbed wire just around, you know, around on the beaches, just around the territory. Uh, and people uh, in Hawaii uh, couldn't use U.S. dollars. Um, they couldn't leave their jobs. They couldn't show up late for work. And this whole system was enforced with a, um, not with, with judges and lawyers, but but in lawyerless military courts where the conviction rate, uh, as far as we can tell, was, was in the high 90%. And I don't want to leave Alaska out. Alaska was attacked by Japan. Most people probably don't know that. Alaska was attacked by Japan, and the United States responded by interning Alaska natives. Uh, again, for the same reason that interned uh, Guamanians, uh, just to get them out of the way. Uh, the, the entire Aleutian uh, island chain was evacuated, and the indigenous inhabitants, although not the white inhabitants of it, uh, were taken into um, camps in uh, southern Alaska. And, and these camps were often had no running water, uh, were filthy, and, and was, were really dangerous places to linger, um, to the point where the death rate in those camps was 10%. And the, uh, I think there were 40 uh People, indigenous people who were taken back to Japan, and uh, half of them died. Yeah, and there was a small number of uh, uh, of Alaska natives who were captured, who were in the uh, uh, tip of Alaska that Japan had captured, and they were taken back to Alaska. I uh, started taken back to Japan, and, and many died there. Um, so. I mean, World War II looks a lot different when you start uh, doing this. It's not, it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's not something that happened from the perspective of the United States over there. It's not something that happened on foreign soil. It's something that very much happened on U.S. territory. I wonder if we could talk a bit about race. And um, you don't shy away from uh, the race component here, from the beginner, beginner of the white settler bomb, as you call it, to um, to all the way up to the kind of good news of admitting Alaska and Hawaii and uh, kind of overcoming white nationalism and, and bringing people of color into the United States purposefully. Um, how, do you, how do you digest the, the race component here? Well, I think it's really important to recognize that it's it's been a huge part of U.S. history. And once you look at the history of the United States as not just the history of the states, but the history of territories as well, you realize that one of the biggest questions about what parts of the of the country get to be territories and what part gets to be states have to do with where do white people live, uh, and so the long history of figuring out when uh, territories become states on North America has a lot to do with the logic of white control. Uh, we often think that territories become states really quickly. Actually, the average time to uh, statehood uh, in 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 North America on the continent is um, uh, forty five years. And there are some places like Oklahoma that were territories uh, uh, before they became states for more than a century, or Oklahoma was for more than a century. And that had a lot to do with who was living in Oklahoma. Before it was Oklahoma, it was called Indian Territory. And um, one of the Supreme Court cases that you um, cite is the Insular Cases, and this decided where the U.S. Constitution applies, and I guess every empire has to make a decision about who is a subject of the empire, who is a citizen, and who is not, who is a, who is a subject. And um, you point out that the same people who decided the Insular Cases were the same people who decided Plessy versus Ferguson, the the Jim Crow laws. Yeah. So uh, the Plessy decision, an infamous one in U.S. constitutional law, 
basically split the United States into two administrative um, zones. You know, there were uh, schools for white people, schools for non-white people, and that was okay, according to Plessy. Um, the Insular cases, uh, decided by almost all of the same justices, had a similar ruling. And that was that the country would be divided into uh, two zones vis-a-vis the Constitution, a constitutional zone, a place where the Constitution applied, and an extra-constitutional zone where it did not fully and automatically extend. And the way one of the justices phrased this was, the Constitution is the law of the land, but some of these overseas territories are not part of the land. So yes, they're owned by the United States. Yes, technically they're part of the United States, but they're not really part of the United States, at, not, at least not when we're talking about the Bill of Rights. Um, the difference between Plessy and the Insular cases is this. Uh, Plessy got overturned uh, by Brown versus Board of Education, and it's you know universally regretted as, as one of the really unfortunate uh, episodes in US jurisprudence. Um, that's not the case for the uh, Insular cases. They're still on the books, and that means that um, you can be born in a U.S. territory. For example, you can be born in American Samoa uh, and not be a citizen. And the reason is you think you should be a citizen. You're born in the United States. The 14th Amendment would grant you uh, citizenship just by virtue of that. Uh, But although American Samoa is American, uh, it's clearly part of the United States. Uh, It is not covered by the Constitution, and therefore people born there are nationals, not citizens. And there's a lot of people who are being detained at Guantanamo who have been trying to knock that idea back and get some kind of uh, representation in court. So besides the uh, inhabited territories of the United States, place that the, places that the country has forthrightly annexed, even if it's held in a sort of legal uh, abeyance, there's also places that the United States exerts control over but uh, has kept out of the, they're not technically annexed. And that also is a a kind of legal gray zone. One of the reasons why Guantanamo Bay became a place uh, to detain suspected terrorists is that um, in the George W. Bush administration, uh, the lawyer John Yu uh, and others were looking for places where the United States would have full exclusive control, but that would not technically fall under the ambit of federal law. And Guantanamo Bay was one of those places. And President Clinton put Haitian uh, refugees there for the same reason. That's right. There's a long and sordid history of, of, of Guantanamo being, being a useful place. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about After World War II with Daniel Immervor. We were talking about his book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell talking with Daniel Immervar today about his book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. Um, after World War II, things take a tour in turn in colonial uh, domination. And most of the people who have colonies start giving them back. The United States is uh, uh, doing kind of the same thing. And I think that's the history we remember and know and think about. Um, your book goes a different direction and starts talking about the, the maybe not so altruistic reasons, but the practical reasons why this became a possibility. Um, you start talking about synthetics and synthetic rubber. You start talking about advances in logistics that were made during World War II. You talk about radio. You talk about DDT and chemicals that are, are different. You talk about the standardization of screw size. Um, the world changes a whole mess during World War II. 
and makes possible something different. That's right. Um, so a big question is, why did empire, which had been the way of the world uh, you know, for millennia, why did that start to become illegitimate and start to recede? And it hasn't completely receded. The United States still has five inhabited territories and millions of people live in them. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this isn't a country that really leans into colonialism in the way that it did at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I think there's two reasons. One reason is more straightforward, uh, is a global revolt of the colonized, successfully beating back imperialists uh, all over the planet. And that's a really important part of the story. Nationalism. That's right. And it drove the cost of colonies up um, for would-be imperialists. But there's another part of the story, which is the one you just mentioned, which is that there are some really interesting new technologies, I call them empire-killing technologies, that the United States mastered, especially during World War II, that allowed it to project power across the planet without having to do large land grabs. And those kinds of technologies um, drove the demand for colonialism down. You see the two things happening at the same time. Um, so shall we talk about uh, one or two of those? Sure, take, pick, take a pick. I'd love to talk about synthetics. Um, so one of the reasons that uh, empire had been so, so important to uh, powerful countries is that they're running these large industrial economies. Uh, sometimes those economies go to war. And when they do, markets close down and they can't get the things they need. But some of those things they need are really important to fighting those wars. So a classic example of this is rubber. Uh, it turns out that rubber doesn't grow in temperate zones. It grows in tropical climates only. And it's hard to get if you are England, if you are France. Uh, and so part of the history of colonialism is securing these hard-to-get tropical products, either getting them from your colonies if you are a powerful empire or, or allying yourself with another empire who can provide them. The Goodyear plantation in Liberia was a big deal for the U.S. That's exactly right. And uh, another big deal for the United States was when World War II started, uh, Japan managed to cut the United States off from uh, nearly, I think, 97% of its rubber supply all at once. And, you know, it's hard to remember what a big deal this was. So at the beginning of the war, there's all these reports about, you know, not only are we not going to be able to fight a war, we're not going to be able to run a civilian economy. We're not going to be able to have cars, right? What, what else could they possibly run on? And so, you know, everyone gets into a tizzy and they start talking about, well, uh, could we have Jeeps that had steel wheels instead of, you know, rubber treads? Is that a possibility? How about wood? Could they run on wooden treads? I mean, it turns out no is the answer to that. Uh, and, uh, oh, maybe could we, uh, you know, some other plant could we uh, grow rubber uh, with? No, that doesn't really work. Uh, how about plantations in Brazil? Well, it turns out that rubber plantations take like seven years to set up. Uh, so this is a dire existential threat. Uh, and the thing that works is something that people aren't really expecting is going to work, which is the United States gets really good at just making synthetic rubber, making it from petroleum. And suddenly at the start of the war, the United States is worried that it's not going to be able to have, you know, uh, baby, you know, uh, bottles for, for baby's formula because you need uh, ru rubber for the tips. By the end of the war, it's just firing up the plants and, and making as much rubber as it needs. And it's not just rubber. Uh, it masters synthesis of so many different things, so many things that it had to get from far off places. So silk, which it had gotten from Asia, uh, is suddenly nylon. Uh, and just you, just sort of gotta, you can go through the entire economy and just see uh, replacement after replacement. And these kinds of technologies, there are others, but um, 
really make it a lot easier for the United States to imagine a future where it has, uh, you know, a power in the world, but it doesn't actually have to have a lot of land that it that it um, directly controls. And you note the one thing that it was the big exception to this was oil. That's right. And it's interesting because oil is, so first of all, there's not a really good substitute for oil for, for most of this time. Uh, and, and it's not a surprise then that oil is the, the commodity that most reliably tempts U.S. leaders back into the old logic of imperialism when they start talking about taking land. It's often oil that's the source of that. You also talk about uh, standardization, and you go digress with uh, Herbert Hoover. And as a visitor to the Herbert Hoover Presidential Museum in Iowa, I can attest to the uh, wonders of his standardization process. And um, he's a fascinating historical figure, mostly remembered for screwing up the Great Depression a little bit while he was president. But as um, uh, as a member of the cabinet, he was uh, a fantastic thing. Yeah, Herbert Hoover, I think, is... Uh, we don't really get Herbert Hoover as much as we should. So Herbert Hoover's big thing was... Well, it was things. Uh, he was fascinated by material objects, and he was particularly obsessed with the notion that material objects could be more efficient. So other people looked at the economy and said, oh, the problem is capitalists. They're you know, taking all the profits. And other people looked at the economy and said, no, no it's workers. They're, 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 they're too greedy. They're going on strike. And Herbert Hoover is the guy who said, no, it's the physical objects. And if we can just standardize physical objects, everything will work better. Uh, and he actually had an enormous amount of success. One of the things that he standardized is... Uh, screw threads, so the helical ridges around screws. It turns out, uh, you know, different manufacturers would make different angles of them, uh, and 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 you know, one one set of screws just wouldn't fit into another set of 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 of, of holes, and that was a major economic problem. Herbert Hoover was the guy who oversaw the solution. And this may seem like a digression from the topic, but here's why it's important: is that uh, in the 1940s and after, the United States became sort of world leader in standardization, standardizing not just within its borders, not just in its territories, but standardizing internationally. So getting other countries to adopt its screw thread angle uh, and its its enormous success in this uh, meant that just things got easier for the United States to do long distance commerce because its parts uh, could be supported. You know, when it flew a plane across the world and that plane broke, someone could fix it and they could fix it using U.S. compliant parts. The United States didn't have to control parts of the Middle East to make that happen. It could just assume that, you know, its parts would be there when it arrived. This made it a lot easier to do business throughout the world without actually physically controlling a lot of territory in it. NATO is kind of a defense standardization organization in a way. One of the first things that NATO does, so NATO is this large uh, permanent military alliance, and one of the first questions that comes up in NATO is not, you know, uh, how are we going to defend against the Soviet Union, uh, this kind of thing. The question is, uh, what, what should our rifles look like? And they actually have to have this question. So, you know, item one, uh, this is a rifle. This is how we define a rifle. So in the future, when you build your rifles, you need to build them like this so that they can be interoperable. And so uh, the Dutch rifles uh, and the French rifles, uh, you know, you can switch out parts from one and put them in the other. That's a major achievement. Um, I want to ask a question about uh, the chapter on Baselandia. And you cite um, Liverpool and the Beatles, Sony, the uh, Japanese uh, music and transistor radio um, operation, and the Bin Ladens as examples of uh, the dual nature of our basing empire. Can can you explain uh, what you mean? So uh, the book doesn't just describe U.S. territories. It also talks about um, 
uh, the the particularly interesting form of uh, spatial power that the United States has today, which is hundreds of military bases in foreign lands scattered across the world. And these bases have been really historically important. If you add them all up, they add to a land area that's um, you know only a little bit larger than Houston. But it's hard to imagine U.S. history without them. And so, in the book, I tell the story of a you know a few. Um, people who've had really interesting interactions with the bases. So, and, and they can go any number of ways. Usually the bases uh, produce a lot of protest. People tend not to like it when the United States plants a base in the middle of their country, just as I imagine as people in the United States might not like it if the Chinese had a base in Texas. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the bases are, are interesting places and places that tend to draw a lot of economic activity and are sort of contact zones between the United States and other parts of the world. So uh, the Beatles... And, and it led the British invasion, uh, playing U.S. style rock, but you know, out competing the United States in doing it. Um, they came from Liverpool, and and they weren't the only British invasion band to come from Liverpool. Why Liverpool? You might ask. Well, it turns out that Liverpool was in the shadow of the single U.S. Uh, largest U.S. Air Force base in Europe, and the Beatles had a lot of connections uh, in, through their parents uh, to that base. Ringo's stepdad worked on the base and would get records from that base and give them to Ringo. Uh, John's mother was what was known as a good time girl. So she sort of ended up you know, going out with a lot of people, uh, presumably many of them from the base. Whatever happened, she had a very large and up-to-date record collection pulling records from the United States, including race records of African-American musicians, uh, that the Beatles, unlike their you know, uh, compatriots in other uh, British towns, just grew up surrounded by that stuff because of the bases. So their, their kind of love of the U.S. things and their subversive element is also kind of a, a, a result of the basing thing. Because a lot of all the other bases, uh, obviously the bin Laden situation in Saudi Arabia, um, the Sony situation where the leader of Sony ends up writing a book on the Japan who can say no, even though he was a worshiper of uh, many things in the U.S. and the way we did business. Um, it's fascinating. It's kind of like a colony. It's kind of like the dual, dual nature of colonies. The bases tend to produce love-hate relationships and getting both sides of that, getting both the attraction and the repulsion, I think is really important to understanding their footprint in global history. Well, you should check out the book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. Daniel Immervar is the author. He's an associate professor of history at Northwestern University. There's lots, lots more interesting stuff in there. Um, check it out. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about the Amazon and the fires in the Amazon forest and the reaction to it. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.